Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hello, this is the second of our short series of Aranax episodes looking at the evolution of the autonomous ship and surface vessels in the shipping and ocean space. I'm Craig Eason, Editorial Director at Fathom World, a company focused on the transformation of the maritime space. I've had a career at sea on fully manned vessels across the oceans of the world and have been a journalist and reporter as well as an event host for the last 15 years. Now this podcast looks at all things maritime and related to the oceans, how we use it and try not to abuse it and how we're likely to use technological advances to make it better. Within this, there are the developments of autonomous systems, ships or unmanned craft. We looked at some of the commercial factors in the first episode and tied up with this is the role of the seafarer. As I said before, I'm not a believer of unmanned autonomous international convoys sailing our seas anytime soon. But I do believe that there are a number of developments, mostly in small coastal vessels that will happen first which does raise a number of interesting questions about regulations, not least regarding manning and training of people. So in this episode, I'm looking at the regulations and how they may need to change. We're not talking today about the smaller autonomous platforms that are sailing or likely to sail across the seas, performing scientific work, such as measuring ocean and atmospheric temperatures and environmental conditions, or the underwater craft used by ocean industries. The focus here is on the ship's crew, on cargo vessels. Discussions about unmanned ships began a few years ago, although remote control systems are of course quite commonplace in the marine world. The offshore oil and gas industry has made good use of remote operated vehicles or ROVs for a number of years where the unit has been operated from a ship or occasionally ashore. And naval forces around the world are also well known to deploy drone systems and aerial and land-based drones are of course well established. There have been tests over the decades of remote control on ships and the power of the navigation systems even in the 1980s or 90s when I was at sea was good enough for a giant gas carrier or tanker to sail across an ocean on one course, come within a set distance of a waypoint and then change direction to another, avoiding known dangers. Collision avoidance was however another thing and required the human eye and ear. But now with the advances of AI it seems that these are becoming replaceable. So where do we stand and where do we start? Well, let's start with the IMO. The International Maritime Organization writes the rules that shipping nations agree to enforce and through them, ship owners and operators are made to follow. The rules are for ships over a certain size and for ships on international trade. Ships in the waters of one nation only, they need to apply only to that country's rules and coastal autonomous vessel projects tend to get government approval and exemptions they are seen as promoting the national effort to be technological leaders. Japan's announcement that it will move half its coastal fleet unmanned by the middle of the century using Japanese technology and know-how is a recent case in point. For international shipping, the IMO has a lot of rules and they all revolve around the ship and its safety and environmental soundness. Some of them are specific to crewing, crewing levels, crew training, competence, welfare, things like MLC, the Maritime Labour Convention, and STCW, the Convention on Standards of Training, Certification, and Watchkeeping for Seafarers. 
So the IMO has started what is called a scoping study to look at the rules and what, if anything, needs to be considered to allow for autonomous and unmanned vessels in international waters. It's an attempt from the IMO to determine how to introduce the terminology surrounding MASS, M-A-S-S, Maritime Autonomous Surface Ships, the wording used by the IMO and elsewhere for these range of unmanned ships that could be emerging. The current part of the scoping study is being overseen by Henrik Tunforsch at Sweden's Transport Agency for one of the IMO's main committee meetings, the Maritime Safety Committee. It is a, an attempt from the IMO to determine how to introduce uh, MAS, which is Maritime Autonomous Surface Ships, uh, into the, the existing uh, IMO legal framework and then making that that operation, MAS operation, safe secure and environmentally sound. That's the, that's the heading, that's the output. And that entails uh, having a scoping exercise, for example, which we are undertaking at the moment in the IMO. Uh, that includes looking into definitions, looking into the terminology, and also looking into how we can, how we can best address the mass in the, in the regulations. And uh, hopefully also looking into better priorities for what instruments are to be chosen first when it comes to amending or uh, interpreting the different instrument or creating a, a new instrument. No small task, there are a multitude of not only safety regulations and instruments in the IMO rulebook, but also ones relating to the environment and other topics such as liability, which future scoping studies will need to look at. But given the project developments that are ongoing, Tunforsch doesn't see the lack of specific rules as a hindrance to them. He also believes these projects, which often run because of national exemptions to the rules, as enhancing the rule assessment and change process that may happen at the IMO. But nevertheless, the timescales for any revisions to the IMO regulations is typical for the IMO. The IMO is a, it's a, it's a very complex system and structure, just the governance of the IMO. So you need first uh, member states, IMO member states, come in with proposals to start the, uh, this new development of regulation. So that could take a couple of years to get it on the agenda. And then you need to develop and discuss uh, sometimes very complex issues like uh, like the master and the role of the master and the remote control centers, new features which uh, aren't there today in the IMO legal system. So uh, my own estimate would be that uh, Comprehensive sort of comprehensive regulation set of regulations might be in place somewhere in the in the 2030s and uh, I think more late 2030s than early 2030s. And you've been working largely with the safety related content in the scoping study at the moment, and obviously there's Marpol, but there's also the training conventions STCW, for example. Now STCW looks at seafarer training on board a vessel and that is the primary role or the primary focus of the IMO is what goes on on the vessel at sea. With the evolution of autonomous ships or with remote control ships you've either got a remote control operator ashore or you've got a figure in the loop as they say who can have oversight of the autonomous system to be able to react if something does go astray. That is a role that is shore-based. 
how do we see STCW and the role of the seafarer developing to meet the requirements that might be needed to have somebody who is a remote control operator or a figure in the loop of an autonomous system ashore? How do we, what role does the IMO have for that shore-based role? The shore-based role has been identified and then it's been identified by the IMO and by several uh, different projects out there. Uh, Masterly is, is the, the most prominent, I, I suppose, uh, to establish the remote control center for Yara Berkeley. But it, it's been it's been identified, and uh, but there are no decisions taken yet. It's been identified and it's been brought up to the attention of the IMO and and uh, my in, in the working group that I'm leading. Uh, we will have discussions on that. So there are no definite decisions on how to um, uh, how to tackle that. Uh, if, if we if we should give the remote control operator any particular role. Uh, if we should have, have have it defined in the SDCW convention as a seafarer or uh, whatever we call it in the future, but it's 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 a it's one of the key aspects uh, remaining uh, when we well not remaining it's one of the key aspects uh, identified during these building exercise. But training will need to be addressed, says Ornolf Rodseth from research group Sintef Ocean, which is looking into these developments and who told us in the last episode about the range of commercial and scientific projects that are ongoing. There is an increasing amount of automation on the ship. And uh, I, I guess you could argue that STCV is not fully up to date on, on the possibilities uh, that we have today. What is quite clear is that if you move people to shore, then you will have some challenges in uh, training that has to be addressed. Uh, currently, I mean, what we have to work with today, and which also the Norwegian um, Maritime Administration has published new guidelines around, is a principle of approving these ships based on, um, what do you call it, uh, new concepts, uh, MSC Circular uh, 4055. Uh, which basically uh, takes away most of this um, written regulatory stuff and, and replaces it with the risk assessments and descriptions and stuff like that. And, and for small projects and uh, as an interim solution, that will probably work, but it will be a very expensive way to uh, to do all this stuff, both uh, in terms of crew training and also technical approval and stuff like that. So at, at some time, we need, we'll, we will need um, more standardized approaches to approval. So, so there is a need, whether we need to uh, to do stuff today, that, that's not uh, something I can answer on, but in the future, certainly. But the Yara Berkland project, which both Tunfort and Rudseth have mentioned, has become a test case of sort, at least in Northern Europe. The vessel may be owned by the Norwegian International Fertiliser and Chemical Company, Yara International, but the operation of the vessel, through a dedicated control centre, will be with Masterly, a joint venture company co-owned by two other Norwegian companies. One is the part state-owned technology firm Kongsberg, the other is the ship owner and ship manager Wilhelmsen, which is better known perhaps for its modern-day role in the deep-sea car carrier market. We heard in the previous episode from Pia Melling from Masterly how the Yara Berkland project may have been delayed due to the coronavirus pandemic response, but the vessel is in Norway and will be used. 
I specifically asked about the fitness of the international rules for training and watchkeeping for today's seafarers and how masterly is approaching control centre staff requirements, as well as, and that's a key question, who is the autonomous ship control centre person that is the human in the loop? We have an ongoing project with um, Wilhelmsen Ship Management again and University of Southeastern Norway and uh, the authorities, so the Norwegian, uh, yeah, the Coast Guard and uh, the maritime authorities, looking into exactly this. What kind of extra training would you need? So the, uh, the USN, this university, they actually made a suggestion on, on a whole set of, of a course that you could add on uh, to give you the right you know, cybersecurity, data handling, uh, multitasking <laughs> in general, um, and the general skills you need in addition to being a certified licensed captain or, or navigator. Yes, so you need to start with the seagoing experience for sure uh, and, and the true maritime knowledge, and you need to add on a little bit of, of extra training. That's a start. Of course, we don't know in like, 10 years how this will look it could well be that you need very different competence than than we think that we need today so this has to evolve uh, we know that you need some additional uh, competence and we know that we need to test how is it to work in that environment how long will you keep your attention what will happen if you're drifting if your attention starts drifting what will happen with your sense of responsibility when you are supposed to trust the technology, but you're also supposed to intervene if things are not going the right, according to plan. And this, you know, this kind of psychology, uh, what will happen to people uh, when they sit in this environment for a long time? And th this is something that we intend to test. So that was the idea also of having like a two-year test period uh, on the Yara Birkeland with a, a reduced crew, but also supervision from shore. And think about all these potential incidents or uh, actions that may be taken and also test it in um, in an um, uh, environment where you can test without uh, really doing the real uh, shipment, right? So there'll be a sort of autonomous ship simulation. Simulation. Setup. That was the word I was looking for. So mm -hmm. we do have a simulator, a full simulator set up from Kongsberg Digital that we can use. We could put in any kind of scenario and and you could test with real people with uh, have the seagoing experience, how would you do this and that? There's also technology like you, you could measure where your eyes are seeing. I tried that myself in our own control center with another university, which was interesting where we, we played out this scenario and they said, oh, can you check this and that? Or this and this happens. And they could monitor, of course, where do I look for information on the screen? And then put together, and then we could put, put together most user-friendly screen uh, based on where the have. eye movements based on where the in, you know where you initially look for a, a solution when you face some kind of problem so i this is what i foresee that a mix of uh, testing out different technology different ways of consuming all the information that you need in um in a, re a remote operation center or remote control center and um, and doing real tests with uh with a vessel as well and then after but as you hear, it's, it's not, it's not going to happen tomorrow uh, that we will have, have any unmanned ships running commercially. So it would, would be a number of years of testing so that we feel entirely safe. 
Now, Pierre Melling is talking about the ship in a coastal setting. But what about when autonomous ships are on international trade and need to be within the IMO rules? Rules which at the moment include such things as minimum manning levels. One line of thought is not to use autonomy and artificial intelligence to take the crew off the ship, but to actually enhance their performance on board. Last year, uh, at the end of the last year, uh, NYK did uh, a test of uh, what they called the autonomous navigation uh, on the on the sea leg between China and Japan. And one good reason for doing stuff like that is, as you say, giving more assistance to the crew and so on and so forth. But, but uh, the situation on the open sea when the weather is uh, nice and you don't have too many other ships in the vicinity is that the ship could probably sail itself very easily for uh, several hours. And, and one of the possibilities which is interesting is to have a sleeping uh, night watch, uh, which uh, quite important to get the better working conditions for the crew. They can work at daytime, they can go to bed and get dressed and stuff like that. With, with the same crew that you have today, it's not necessarily a reduction in the crew, but uh, the working condition will be much better if you can do stuff like that. And, and for a lot of the deep sea crossings or offshore crossings, uh, this should be quite feasible as long as the weather is okay. That's something akin to the unmanned engine room notation that some yeah, ships exactly. already exactly. have, so that yeah. the engineers don't need to be down in the engine room keeping watch. 24-7, they can put the remote alarms on and they, yes. they can actually have the evening in their bunks just being called out whenever an alarm goes off and they go down to investigate. And that's something that you think that could be involved. And I've seen proposals being put forward by some companies already to have periodically unmanned bridges. They even uh, coined a term for it. I, I think uh, DMV GL has a uh, notation E0 for unmanned engine. So I think we in Brunin and also ABB, they have talked about B0 for periodically unmanned bridge. But for all this, we still need to see how regulations will develop. Henrik Tunforsch thinks the developments in the commercial space and technology space will help the IMO process. But of course, an autonomous ship is a very complex uh, entity. So I guess that person or might need to have other uh, other characteristics or other sorts of the knowledge as well. On on on, uh, it could also be someone with communication uh, skills or or IT skills. It's all depending on what kind of uh, what kind of what the needs are uh, from that in a, in a control center, and I think that's that's why it's, it's so it's so beneficial also for the IMO process to have the projects like the Masterly Masterly project, and I know there are also other projects out there uh, looking into this and, and trying to create trying to create the, the best possible uh, policy for for their their own projects. And I'm sure that they all they all have safety first in mind because um, there's so much at stake here, and so I think we don't safety is, is in the first first and foremost in, in, in focus of everyone involved. Henrik Tunfors from the Swedish Transport Agency, who's coordinating the IMO scoping exercise, which looks at the international regulations and what may need to be changed to allow autonomous unmanned vessels in the future. The STCW convention, according to some in the industry, is in need of revision. It's not so much because of a need to accommodate the technology of autonomous ships and short control room staff based responsibilities and training, 
but the very present need for ship's officers to be better trained for the range of technical solutions now emerging on vessels that are not yet covered in the mandatory training course requirements that the maritime colleges, which create the junior officers, have to follow. Hopefully we'll touch on that issue in a future episode of the Aranux podcast. But in our next episode on autonomous ships and systems, we look at how technology companies are tapping into the ingenuity, entrepreneurship, and the risk-taking capabilities of startup companies. We hear from the Doc Innovation Hub in Israel, which is running a startup search for companies to support Tyson Krupp, a well-known shipbuilder with its drive for autonomy. Tyson Krupp has a lot of experience in autonomy already. One of its engineering divisions makes elevators and lifts and has developed an autonomous maintenance delivery drone, while other divisions have been working closely with mobility automation, particularly in the automotive industry. So in the next episode, we look at what they are looking for in shipping autonomous systems and how startups are powering autonomous systems and autonomous ships in the ocean industries. But before we end today, let's hear from Nick Chubb from Thetius, who has our regular update on what's been happening over the last few days in the tech and startup space. Thanks, Craig. Container shipping giant Maersk announced the creation of the Maersk McKinney Molar Center for zero carbon shipping this week. The center, which will be based in Copenhagen, is aimed at producing independent research on the decarbonization of the shipping industry and has already been backed by maritime heavyweights like ABS, Cargill, Man Energy, Mitsubishi, NYK Line and Siemens. It's opening with a $60 million donation from the AP Molar Foundation. $60 million is a great start, but there is a long way to go. $60 million is about 0.006% of the total cost to decarbonize the industry, according to a study by University College London. As the world's crew change crisis rumbles on, with as many as 400,000 crew members stuck at sea, we have released a report looking into the technologies that can improve welfare for seafarers. Though crew safety and welfare is often described as the industry's highest priority, this does not appear to be reflected by investments made, either in technology providers themselves or in procuring their solutions. Globally, the ship management software market is worth $3.8 billion a year, and startups and SMEs founded since 2010 have raised $280 million in venture funding. But startups with a focus on human factors attract on average four times less funding and grow 25% slower than startups focused on machinery performance. There are plenty of other insights available in the report and the full reports available from Thetius.com. That's all for this week. Next week, we hear more about how startups are set to influence the autonomous ship space. And in a future episode, we hear more directly from the large technology companies themselves who have the solutions, even if they don't have too many customers yet. So that's all for this week. Remember, visit Fathom World to read more about the developments in autonomous shipping, the startups, engineering firms, and the experts behind it, as well as other news about the transformation and sustainability drive of the ocean industries. We send out a newsletter each week, so sign up for that too. And of course, don't forget to sign up to get updates of this Aranax podcast. Aranax is brought to you through the work we do at Fathom World, and we, as always, appreciate your support and following. So please let us know what you think about Aranax, Get in touch with me directly. I'm on Twitter as ShipTech. And of course, you can find me at fathom.world. Until the next episode, goodbye.